This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. describes himself as the cartographer of the simulation, architect of post-America, man may not be replaced, archaeofuturism. Uh, Apex, great having you on. Yeah, hi Robert, thank you for having me. Really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, look forward to it. And uh, So you're a former uh, leftist, and with the sphere, the Twitter sphere is, I'm not really sure, what labels are, uh, kind of putting things in boxes can be a, a bit stifling, but there is this, I guess some people would describe it as the post-right sphere, and I'd say it's actually very different. I'm not sure if you were around back then, but very different than than right wing the right-wing sphere around in 2016. So uh, if you want to kind of give some background information or your political evolution, uh, you're a former leftist, and uh, yeah, the so, revolution, uh, and then how did you kind of get, get to where you are now? Yeah, perfect. Um, so, yes, I, for a very long time, I identified as just, you know, uh, I don't know say a run-of-the-mill leftist, but, you know, a, a pretty standard one. Um, so, you know, back in high school, um, I was your typical teenage anarchity who thought he'd figured out the world, and if, you know, people would just stop being stupid and get along, everything would be fine. Um, obviously, you grow out of that, and specifically the driver for my growth there was actually a blogger named Zippy. He blogged on a, a blog called Zippy Catholic. It was a WordPress blog. Um, he unfortunately passed away in 2018, but he was a, a pretty big driver for me to realize that... So this was 2018. Uh, this was after after the kind of fall of what was referred to as the alt-right, like all these events like Charlottesville, and then the 2016 uh, Trump movement. You never... So you never were associated with any of that stuff? Yeah, no, no. Around 2016, for me, was... I, I was still kind of in the still in the left but coming For, to terms uh, a like supporter? um no no i was i i was i was pretty um you know i i really wasn't invested in in the election i'm going to be entirely honest i thought donald trump was entertaining i liked the memes but i was never too deeply involved i wasn't like a political activist or anything i didn't register people to vote or whatever i mean i was a a freshman at uni in 2015 in the fall and so so 2016 spring 2016 fall i you know i was still pretty young 
Uh, I didn't really get involved in anything, but the uh, the for for me those years were more of a kind of a grappling with you know my you know I had encountered Zippy in 2015, and it was kind of a grappling with okay, it looks it seems as if my understanding of the world is deeply misguided that I just kind of adopted these frameworks because they felt nice, they sounded nice. And now I had someone who had really drilled down into them in language that also was not this super theoretical or philosophical language. It was, you know, very approachable to an 18-year-old. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And, you know, obviously when when your views get challenged at first, your instinct is to turtle, and I did. But, you know, oh, it was it was like it, it scratched a part of my brain. So most of 2016 for me was spent on different parts of the Internet, on, on, on WordPress blogs and, and kind of engaging. Discord was, was a big one. Uh, you know, I think it had just launched in 2015 and I got onto it in 2016 and in, in early 2016. And, you know, back then there was it was still a bit of a vibrant platform um, for, for debate. And there were lots of people from all over the place. And um, so, so that was, that was really where I hung out. I wasn't, I, I didn't really pay attention to, you know, what, what I guess we could refer to as the alt right at the time. Um, I wasn't really in the know. I, I think I probably saw the memes two or three weeks later than everyone else. Um but overall, uh, 2016 came and passed, and over time, as you know, I, I started identifying as what I would call a post-liberal leftist, which effectively could be summed up as saying that the principles of the left had become so abstract and unmoored from reality that they no longer served as any kind of real ethical grounding that you know this this almost this this abstract idea of freedom or, or of harm or even of consent had, had kind of morphed into these ideas that no longer justified anything on their own and effectively were almost like emotional bludgeons that were used uh you know to to support whoever was in power, it was almost as if we'd returned to might makes right. And, and truthfully, I, I think, you know, however much leftists liked to think we were rebels, we weren't, we, we were the ones in power, um, you know, and, and, and one of the more difficult realizations is that the system of social relations that the left supports is the exact substrate the exact ground that is required for that demands capitalism um and and i think that's one of those 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 moments where i was kind of like okay well this isn't going to work um and over time i mean i think that the 2016 to 2020 period and 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 especially even the last couple years um has was really one of those eye-opening moments in, in just the sheer hysteria and the derangement, um, the the complete lack of connection between people's reactions and what was actually going on, 
Um, and, and, and more and more, I, I, I drifted away from the left, not on philosophical matters. I mean, that break had already happened, but really on personality matters, this kind of dehumanization of, of, of people who voted for the wrong person. And it was very disturbing. Um, and, and really, you know, my final break was, was the 2020 election where right afterwards the amount of, of joking, it, it, it kind of crossed the line where it wasn't really joking anymore of, you know, oh, well, the Hispanics voted for Trump, so, yeah, they can all get deported now. We don't really care. The, the, the almost instrumentalization, like turning people into, into voters and nothing more. Um, and, and you see this quite recently in, in, in so much of the Afghanistan discourse. I mean, you know, even when people try to hide it under under the, the number of people who genuinely care about this from a humanitarian perspective is vastly lower than the number of people who are pretending to care simply in order to, to gain some upper edge, either in the ballot box or uh, labor wages or, or however. So, um that was kind of my final break. And, and now, I mean, I, I, I think I probably, I, I have a pretty decent balance of, of people who follow me, but you know, and, and I, I think I probably hang out more with the right or the post, right. Or whatever you want to call that sphere of Twitter. Um, simply because ironically, it's more welcoming uh, of an atmosphere like, uh, right now. Yeah. It does seem like there's a switch to the left now is similar to a lot of conservatism of the 90s, the Bush era, and then the right now has elements of the left from the past. Like obvious examples being, uh, it's not totally uh, perfectly matched, but you do kind of see that trend, free speech, uh, anti-war, even some economic issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that in a lot of ways the left has, as it, took power it, it took power partially because it had become liberal and it taking power only intensified and entrenched to the liberalism and in response you know the, the friend enemy rules the day and, and the right kind of started just turning against that um so it you know it ended up looking like some of those earlier movements i mean i i i feel as if you know the left is just it you know there's this constant tone policing and, and no one can have a moment of levity and and, and you know i mean i've I, I criticize the left very very severely on the grounds that it has given up any sense of morality and in that vein actually demands commodification it you know i i use the phrase crypto hyper capitalists um, to, to describe what they are, they don't. They don't admit to it. They don't. They, they'll refuse to acknowledge it if you tell them that. They'll. 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 They'll attack you for it. But that is what they are. So yeah, for my writings on uh, my Substack, I plan on writing a lexicon for alt centrism. But uh, you use a lot. Of, a lot of these different terminology. Are you going for a more kind of uh, elite audience, or do you want uh, your writings to be understandable? in more layman's terms for, say, uh, normies or just kind of dissidents or midwits? Or are you going for a more elite audience and how you describe these different concepts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, 
the the goal is of course to to be able to explain it to anyone um any particular piece might be geared towards a different group um or just any subset of the audience but overall you you'd you'd want it to be approachable to everyone um i think it's certainly something that i i can struggle with i think that every writer will over time develop their own vocabulary the way they like to say things and people who aren't familiar with it may struggle to oh yeah like the to, buzz, to understand the buzzwords, that so i have my buzzwords like pan-enclavism and you have systems and uh you do explain them but if someone stumbles across an article i could see how either yours or my article my articles they could get a bit uh confused so syst- but with systems this goes beyond just the political system of government. You're more actually talking about, you have a lot of theme systems and agencies, uh, systems, uh, how they're reshaped via shifts, ability to shift systems. But this actually goes beyond uh, just just a government or a political system. You're talking about social, social systems as well. And if you want to kind yeah. of explain, explain that in uh, more detail. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that obviously at this point, you know, you can – sure, people can point to some tiny little political philosopher from the 20th or the 18th or the 16th century and say there are the solutions. But like political philosophy at this point is bunk. It's 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 exhausted. It's worn out. My goal primarily is to develop a kind of uh, – this sounds so stupid and cringy, but like a meta-political philosophy uh, – a step between politics and ethics. And, and, and that will include some kinds of ethical discussions. It'll include sociology, it'll include some political stuff. But, but you're talking, you know, about a, about an interdisciplinary approach, you know, whether it's urbanism, education, all of that um, into uh, a system that understands healthy societies at a level somewhat above uh, politics and so one of my biggest issues is um, reductionist theories and, and so, so yeah that would you include know, when, uh, class class reductionism the yeah, faction of the left like even like the dirtbag left is uh, they are an ally against woke neoliberalism but uh, I've written about this too they have their own flaws yeah I, I mean you know, I, I I don't really engage the dirtbag left just because you know I don't really like them personally. Um, but I, I think that what well, you know both of us will refer to you know that that constellation of thinkers that that are disparagingly called post left and whatever their label is, you 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 know what I mean. And there's that there's that group of thinkers and the you know the class first and 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 all of that stuff. And you know I'm. I would say the What's same up? for for those. Uh, well, obviously, it's the case for for reductionism, like at free markets, uh, that can solve everything. That's obviously the case. But I'd also say that for those on the right, so identity identity is important. But then some people say like there's also race reductionist on the right and on the left. Oh and yeah, it's, I'd yeah. say it's a holistic approach. All of these yep. issues matter as far as identity politics, but uh, reductionism. Over reductionism is definitely oversimplistic, but it's better to take a holistic approach. Like, how do you how do you connect all these different these different aspects? Because there's all these identity versions of identity politics, uh, gender, 
uh, that go beyond individualism. There's gender, religion, there's class, there's race, uh, there's age, all these different things. And yeah. uh, yep. it gets very complex, like basing your entire identity on one thing, but you have to take a holistic approach. And I guess you can't just, like I reject, you, as you, I think you wrote a substack about this, you can't, you can't just uh, reject or ignore identity politics. It is going to be because people form form uh, people form tribes, and that's how they gain social capital and political power. Yeah, I mean, so so you know, I I think I, I wrote in that piece, you know, all politics are identity politics. It's 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 effectively that you know you have this objective or external or, or whatever you want to call it set of relationships or roles it's like however you feel about it you are some person's child you are some person's parent you are a worker or an owner or or some combination of the two you live in town a not town b and all of these things provide incentives they they provide incentive structures but what 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 i feel like so many people fail to you know look at either because they don't it's it's harder to model or they they get you know they want everything to be scientifically optimizable um is that people have different subjective weights on those objective interests and being able to shape the weights of other people is both empirically you know we know this happens um we know that that the people who have the power to shift narratives are capable of shifting how people you know what roles do people align with or feel most strongly about um and so you know when, when we're looking at this we have to understand all of these different roles and, and all of the different roles an individual may care about and then look at you know the the narrative producing and, and propagating institutions and how they're shaping things I mean these things are shaped via power we know this I mean even something as banal as advertising is aware of this it is aware of shaping how we perceive ourselves how we perceive the world what is or isn't important um, what roles should be followed how to identify I mean we we know this and we know that it has power yeah I mean, politics we, we, like people have their own their own needs, like economic, uh, political, uh, social, even psychological, but all those needs, even if they're, a lot of them are subconscious too, and I wrote about that in my old centrist article, but they all relate to some form of identity politics. There's no one's yep. like a, a pure, pure autonomous individual. Yep. Um, and, and so it's, it's you know the the whole point of those pieces was was you know well, I guess not the whole point but but a point of those piece pieces was uh, to to really emphasize the importance of um, of uh, what's it called of agency you know and and, and of, of of understanding that individuals do shape systems they're shaped by them but they do shape them and they're not wholly defined by those systems and so. Um, you know, that, that was, you know, even from my early days, it was one of the, the concerns I had with the left is this, this far too system based thinking, um, there's there's social systems, but one thing I've noticed about the modern left is they're really big on empowering, uh, institutional top down centralized institutional power. 
Well, I mean, I, I think that when you when you perceive the world as as lacking a, any kind of agency, then that that's just that just naturally flows. I, I mean, it's um, it, it's 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 a problem, and then you know you combine that with like this love of convenience and optimization and all of that, and you you end up getting a very anti-human ideology. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, there's, there's a lot more in common between the left and neoliberals. than I think that they would like to admit to themselves. Um, and, and that was, again, a, a major driver of why I left the left, um, is it just wasn't something that I could, you know, uh, support any longer. And, you know, I, I mean, there's, I, I still will policy-wise agree with the left on quite a lot of things, but, you know, the philosophy is very different, and some things you just can't salvage, and I think that, you know, if you're asking, you know, how do you build a healthy society, how do you build a good society that, that, that helps people live good lives, um, you know, I, I don't think that the, the you, you know, like, autonomy is a precondition of virtue. I, w- I will say that you know you, you need to you need the ability to make your own decisions without being coerced in order to have even a chance at being a good person. Um, and at the same time, you know that's it's a precondition, yes, but it's not the condition of of what is virtuous or not, and it, it can't serve as that. Um, you know, there, there is right, there is wrong. And I think that, you know, if, if you want to build a society that, that allow, you know, that treats everyone with dignity and respect and, and helps people really develop as people and, and develop morally and develop their talents, and, you know, really add and, and live the best life they can. I, I think that you need a much more substantive moral grounding and the left appears to refuse to do that. Um, it, it could do that, but it, it appears to refuse to do that. And, and so I think that, you know, when, when, when we start talking about systems and agency and all of that, you know, you're, you're kind of in this meta politics or post politics or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, these discussions in which you're, you're really trying to ask, a question that is one foot in the realm of ethics and one foot in the realm of politics is going, okay, how do I build a healthy society? What does that mean? And and that's really, I think that the kind of project that's lacking. Um, I mean, there's, there's plenty of aesthetic projects on, on the right. Um, There's plenty of, uh, you know, there's a handful of leftist theories. There's, you know, uh, plenty of, of other dissident spaces across the spectrum. I mean, your alt-centrism is one of those um, that, that you know, clearly has ha- has a bit of a following. And so, you know, there's, there, there's pockets of vibrancy, but um, so much of it is not, is still accepting these, these false uh, starters, these false assumptions and you know, you, you, you really have to uh, um, engage more substantively with that ethical grounding 
if you want to be able to to escape from you know this exhausted world that we live in so that is the objective of of any system political or social is to provide as many people as possible with just a decent quality of life and all the major political ideologies uh have basically they've uh, they've failed at that and the system as a whole but yeah looking at like social atomization is a it's it's a, it's a it's a social crisis and a product of a lot of different things uh some could say some could even blame it on an era of extreme prosperity some ideological factors and a lot of it is just technological change even technological progress and you have the the discussion from Robert Putnam's bullying alone but uh, it is uh, it is so embedded, like the system that we have now, it does seem like that is a fundamental, there's something fundamental about this, uh, the system that causes this, this atomization, and uh, you kind of, yeah, you do kind of get to both, it relates to economics and uh, social issues, because looking at the at social conservatives versus social libertarians, and uh I mean, I was never, uh, I never really was a fan or supported the kind of, the geo, like GOP-type wedge issue, social conservative policies, and uh, actually I've actually been more kind of a socially liberal on many, many issues, and I have seen uh, the conservative movement under Trump actually were social conservatism and evangelical uh, politics actually waning in favor of more social libertarianism, so... Uh, I never really identified as a, as a social uh, as a social conservative, but I think the best argument that you can make against social liberalism, uh, beyond uh, just like the wedge issues, is that idea of radic- radical autonomy just leading to to atomization. Yeah, I well, I I mean, I think it's important, you know, to, to note that. Um, that you know, obviously, the right and left have been very diverse spheres of thought for for a very long time, and and at least, and, and I don't know, I I feel like it was a fairly major strain of thought for a while, um, but I feel as if many on the left, when I especially when I was on the left, understood some degree of substance to to, to those ethical groundings beyond autonomy. Because there are and, there are arguments you can make. So uh, take an issue like uh, drug legalization, and I'm actually am sympath I'm a, I am sympathetic to that argument because there are countless arguments against the war on drugs, or there are legitimate arguments for gay rights. So there are legitimate arguments you can make for socially liberal stances. Just the the key flaw is when it gets to that point of radical individual autonomy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, um, one of the first things that I wrote seriously a number of years back, and and, and it, it was very poorly formulated then, and I, I improved it over time, but you know, was like a non-liberal defense of gay rights, um, or and a non-liberal defense of prison reform, and and so you know there are. There are certainly ways. This is what I meant. You know, the idea of a post-liberal left, uh, a a you know, the left has a way out. Will it? So take is it, it sort I of similar know. to the point I made in my old center article that I'm calling for uh, incorporating its uh, left-wing policies that may be left-wing, 
but without the philosophical basis of the left. Yes, yes, that is pretty much exactly what I'm referring to. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are, and, and obviously people are going to disagree with me, and I think that's fine. You know, part of part of the metapolitical project is that, you know, I, I mean, I've had people who go, like, I dislike the leftists you, who, are, who engage with your work, or I dislike the right-wingers who engage with your work. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, but the idea of a metapolitics is that it's neither left nor right. It, it's establishing a, a, a firmer ground in which then the left and right can, can grapple. Um, you know, in, in the same way that the left and the right were both birthed from a, a, a liberal framework or, or, or a proto-liberal framework, um, you know, with the French Revolution. Um, just as that, you, you kind of need, I mean, hopefully not nearly as bloody as the French Revolution. That would be horrifying. But you, you need a metaphorical one. You need, you need a new ground that a new left and right can kind of be birthed from. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think that you and I, um, you know, when I was reading your articles, I think you and I probably, you know, compared to the people that we engage with um, on, on Twitter, um, you and I probably swing further left on, on at least on a number of social issues. Yeah, I'd say... Um, uh... I guess it depends because it depends. Uh, yeah, it depends. Who, who I'm associated with. I have associated with more progressive causes, but I would say among my political sphere and among the people who I interact with, who I'm fan, who follow and retweet me and interact with on Twitter, I'd say that I'm actually uh, more left wing than maybe 70 or even 80 percent, maybe at least 70 percent of them. So to yeah. show you that. Uh, you might you might have left wing stances, but there's certain litmus tests that force you to align with uh, more right wing people. Because I'd say even though I have left wing stances, the people I align maybe feel like forced to align with are more on the right. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that you know I I always chuckle whenever I post like one of my my results from one of those like political compass or political values. I well, posted like, mine. I got centrist, but slightly closer to the left. And I kind of joked like, isn't that like basically the same as like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton? So that makes it seems <laughs> pretty superficial then. Yeah, but you're a you're it's a radical centrism, yeah, dude. Exactly. Radical centrism. Um, I mean, I, I always consistently get, you know, pretty substantially on the left, um, and and people, you know, are always surprised at that. I mean, I I, I think that, you know, the, the problem is, you know, there are litmus tests that are political, and there's litmus tests that are personality-wise. It's just kind of like, all right, if you can't take a joke, We're then also I'm out of here. Because a lot of, yep. a lot of politics is these aesthetic preference to tribes. Yep, yep. It's all aesthetic and sentiment. Um, but... Um, you, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, when, when you're looking at this, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, the question is, you know, how do you build that, you know, morally substantive ground? Um, and, and, and then a new left and right can be birthed from that. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I think that, you know, you and I both understand. You know the 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 need to balance, or at least this is this is part of what I got from from reading a few of your articles and, and engaging with you on Twitter. You know, is is understanding the need to balance. 
you know, individual subjectivity with the need for community involvement and, and embeddedness and, um, you, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think that we, we agree plenty on, on those kinds of areas. And kind of with this idea of a radical center, one of the critiques that I, that I hear is, I forget who coined it, but the idea that if something is not explicitly right-wing, that it goes, that it ends up shifting to the left. I understand Hulu that. Hulu always swims left, yeah. That's, that's, oh, that's yeah. Pretty... I don't endorse that, but I sort of get that, and I counter that argument by putting forth some core principles and uh, kind of like a dissident center syncretic politi- politics that fuses the left and the right. Uh, I'm not really sure if it's like going to take off. It could take off, but it's hard to say. And it also kind of relates to the slippery slope fallacy. It is relevant to like that vision for a dissident center. So take social issues, social conservatism. That I mean, that's kind of the example. And I guess one of the really kind of, it's insane, but also kind of sad, is uh, they recently in D.C., they arrest, arrested this, like, right-wing domestic uh, terrorist, and they have a video of him speaking, and basically he's throwing his life away by engaging those kind of, that criminal behavior, but in the clip, he's basically, has a pretty pro-establishment stance, like he's for a colorblind anti-racism but a hawkish foreign policy. He's sort of like a establishment conservative. People on Twitter are, are kind of talking about that. It is pretty sad, but it is like the cliche of conservatives adopting the political stances of liberal social values of liberalism from the eighties and nineties. And well, I mean, that, that's what, that's what it is. I yeah. Mean, that's what most it is. conservatives also, are, uh, are right liberals. Yeah. The right liberals. So and also kind of the, yeah, the slippery slope fallacy of it applies to economic arguments as well. So one example is populist conservatives are, they'll say that they're, they're sort of like you populist conservatives that are, they're engaged in class, they're engaged in class war, but at the same time they're opposed to taxing billionaires because it's a slippery slope to, uh, to Marxism. So yeah, the slip, that's a slippery slope fallacy, but I do think uh, fusion, like I do call for fusionism of the left and the right. Yeah, there does need to be some agreed-upon core principles to either prevent the slippery slope fallacy or for just or for just a really kind of shallow, watered-down version of what conservative of what conservatives have have become. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that the idea that Cthulhu always swims left is is very much a historically contingent. Uh, uh, observation, you know, I, I mean, it's just like the the left has power, whether it wants to admit that or not, and so unless you have, unless your institution has greater cohesiveness and, and can withstand external attacks and, and maintain that cohesiveness, it's going to fall apart, um, you know. So that that that's how I read it, and that's true for any institution, you know. I mean, if if the left wants to, if if some portion of the left has an epiphany and decides to stop being secret hyper-capitalists and actually go beyond, you know, individual autonomy and, and, and really develop a substantive pro-worker uh, philosophy, then, you know, you'll, you'll, they'll, they'll be faced with the same dilemma, which is, you know, your institutions have to be more cohesive 
um, and, and more demanding on on its on it on its members than than the enemy ones. And you know, it's very rare to have good institutional design. Um, you know, it's something that I've been trying to explain and investigate, but it's very difficult to do that. Um, and 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 so you know, I, I think that you end up getting you know conservative ink, which. I think I, I mentioned this, you know, to you before, which is, you know, the 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 obsession with procedure, with um, claiming neutrality, or oh, it's a private business, or you know, they can do what you want. I mean, Rand Paul got kicked oh, yeah, off it's, of YouTube, uh, principles, and it's then principles over actually having a plan to succeed. Yeah, but and and it's 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 not even like you know the idea is oh you either have these principles or or you have no principles. It's like you should have different principles, you know. Like there's these principles are clearly you know backwards and wrong. I mean, um, obviously something has gone horribly horribly wrong here. Um, you know, in our understanding of of, of public versus private, and our understanding of, of free speech of the public square um, of, of corporations and you know you know many things have gone horribly wrong and so you end up getting i i think almost a a a terror at the idea of imposing you know the the idea that oh i don't want to impose myself on others you're always imposing yourself on others every you know oh yeah like the kind of uh, it's like the non-aggression principle yeah, it's all nonsense. You, uh, a morality is always being imposed. If it's not imposed by the state, it's imposed by a group of powerful institutions that are given a pat on the back by the state and allowed to impose their will. Like it doesn't. The powerful are always imposed. Yes. The question is: Are you going to have principles, or are you going to work on a procedure that effectively reduces to might makes right? Um, it's like congratulations after 2,500 years of political philosophy, you're back with the ancient Greeks. Um, Thucydides would be proud. You know, it's 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 a very big problem, and, and you know, you kind of gotta look at these at, at these groundings. And, and so, you know, I, I think that there's there's room. I think that there, there's room to convince people, but you know, you're you really have to to let go of a lot of the allegiances um, to, to certain principles. I mean, you know, on on the left, you need to, to let go to this idea of quote-unquote equality because um, that idea doesn't mean anything, and, and generally what it does mean is something deeply inhuman. Um, and on the right, you really need to let go of, like, this idea of you know of, of capitalism of of you know the the idea that that this system is somehow more free, um, you know it's just as bureaucratic, it's just as managerial, it's just as centralized. As oh every yeah, other you make the point like the left are they're actually hyper capitalist, they're hyper product of hyper capitalism. They're not classical. Like, I'm not a Marxist, yeah, no. but the left are not. But even Marxist. even Marx, I mean, I would I would go so far as to say that Marx can be read because you know he has a huge corpus of thought and, and contradicts himself quite a bit, but he can be read as either a non-liberal humanist of you know the Renaissance, um, not Renaissance more, but like Enlightenment era humanism, or he can be read as a liberal. He can be read as a liberal, um, and. 
I think that most people, especially in the post-World War II era in which, you know, liberalism has certainly been utterly triumphant, um, I, I think that most people read him as such. And you, even, even, the, even people who identify as a classical Marxist tend towards that reading. Or they tend towards a very mechanical analysis of society and then claim that they can't do any, you know, everything else is idealism or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, these, even these classical Marxists are <laughs> many times, you know, they're, they're hyper-capitalists. I mean, all that is solid melts into air has ironically been, been facilitated by the very people who, you know, read that line and thought it meant something. You know, the, the Marxists themselves have, have, have dissolved many of the obstacles to capital's continued um, dominance in the yeah, world. Yeah, like they're both uh, both the Marxist side and the capitalist side. They're both totally uh, managerial, and you kind of look at the managerial. Argument, they're bureaucratic. Yeah, they, they the modify that things. there's there's no such thing as a private company because corporations are backed up by by the state and by by central banks. But even though, like, I actually have heard libertarians make that argument, but then they'll they'll get really they'll say, "Oh, but true mar- free markets have not been tried." They will acknowledge that corporations are a product of state regulation, but their vision obviously is not going to work. Uh, it's not going to work uh, either. Uh, my economic views are are uh, more nuanced. I'm not far left economically. I, I have a more kind of nuanced stance. But you do need. A degree of state power in the economy, in the in the economy, well, uh, and I guess you would say, uh, like looking at capitalism and the division division of ownership versus absentee ownership. Are you generally? How would you describe so, your economic theory? Would you say you're generally sympathetic to distributism? Okay, yeah. So, so well, first I would say that you know the the guiding principle is for me. You know, understanding that economics is embedded in politics, which is embedded in ethics. Markets are not good in and of themselves. Um, there was, I forget who, I, you know, it was actually, I think it was a liberal, but uh, Amartya Sen, uh, that was his name, you know, formalized the, the you know, the, the paradox that, you know, a, a perfectly efficient market can lead to social problems. Um, that that uh, a market working markets rarely work, and when they do, it's rarely good. I think that was the the phrase that was used. Um, so, you know, understanding that markets and economics broadly is a tool, um, you know, to to be used to help bring about the good life, um, to help bring about a healthy society, and to help maintain that healthy society. So. When it comes to um, the the ownership side, I'm, you know, I I would say that I'm sympathetic to distributism, um, but you know, put most most clearly here is that my opposition largely is to two things, which is one to absentee ownership. I think that the moment that ownership becomes unmoored from labor is the moment capital accumulation just completely runs out of control. Um, you know, and, and that, that sets you on a terminal path to, to destruction. 
um, either either through ecological destruction because you expand faster than you can maintain yourself. And I mean, you know, just look at America's soil quality and look at the air of, of, of the world. I mean, even our animals are getting fatter. I mean, it's not... It's not just corn syrup. Like our our soil is literally less nutritious than it was before, um, and I, I think that you know when when it comes down to it, you you know land, labor, capital, these things need to be unified. Um, and, and I point to actually, you know, I, I originally got this view not from Marx or or, or even Chesterton or, or, or Bellick. I got it from Smith. You know, I mean, I mean, Adam Smith writes in The Wealth of Nations. He does a, I wouldn't call it rudimentary, but it's certainly not on Marx's level. Or There's Weber's a kind of economic level. theory where it's, uh, it's not Marxist or left wing, but the belief that economics should be based upon something tangible. So labor, labor goods, uh, as opposed to I mean, usury or, or managerialism, I'm not sure... If that would be certainly that's but that's a way of thinking it's it is it's yeah it, it's it's i wouldn't say it's necessarily distributism per se um i i certainly oppose usury broadly i i think you know inflation should be zero um we need massive deleveraging um you, you know so so certainly i i would say that you know if someone held a gun to my head it was like pick one economic system that's probably the closest to what you believe it would probably be distributism but you really, for me, you know, reading The Wealth of Nations cover to cover, um, I had to do that twice in uni. It's a big freaking book. Um, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was, was uh, Smith's class analysis, in which he notes that he doesn't, there's a couple points in the book. In one part of the class analysis, he says that the, the interests of the laborer and the landlord are aligned with the interests of society that as society's prosperity increases you know labor and land benefit from this but that capital is that that's not actually the case um and on the other side he he notes that you know uh laborers are are, are hard working but you know they don't they don't look to the future capitalists look to the future but they're kind of lazy and landlords are just scum that's effectively what he what he writes um and, and for me, you know, Smith then proposes what he calls the independent workman. The independent workman, that is the phrase he uses, um, is an individual who owns their own labor, owns their own capital, and owns their own land. Um, so, so think of it as like a, a, a farmer who owns their own tools and land. They don't have a bank loan or anything, and they sell that. There, there's no surplus value. There's, you know... All of the interests are aligned with society. And, and so, you know, with absentee ownership, what you get is you get capital accumulation at the expense of general well-being. I mean, you, you need a, 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 a system of competition. You need a system that drives efficiency. That's true. But you also need to make sure that the system is working towards the general good of society. I mean, this is, it's just an assumption in Smith. I mean, most people don't realize that the free market and the assumptions is, that are aligned with it. It's kind of bizarre it, because uh, Smith was the father of capitalism, but he actually sounds closer to distributism. He sounds in some ways closer to like Chesterton and Bellick than he would well, sound like Ronald Reagan. 
I mean, if you if you take a couple assumptions, if you take a couple assumptions that aren't too out there for economics, Smith and Marx are effectively advocating for very similar systems, um, you know, in, in terms of, of what they're looking at. But most people don't realize that, that Adam Smith was very much um, influenced by David Hume and Francis Hutcherson. Okay, and, and more specifically, or more broadly, I suppose, opposite of specifically, um, more broadly, he was he was influenced by day by deist metaphysics, and the idea of deist metaphysics that that emerged in the Enlightenment is the idea that there there was a creator, but you know, modern deism is like, oh, there was a creator, he created the world, and then he kind of just fucked off, you know, and that's that wasn't actually what deism was. Deism believed in a much more substantial ideology um, or metaphysics, which was that the creator had actually fine-tuned everything in the universe to work harmoniously and if only people could just kind of you know do what is like things naturally work in harmony and this is this is an assumption it is an, it is a metaphysical assumption and yet that metaphysical assumption passed itself down through Hutchison and Hume to a lesser extent but very much Hutchison into Smith and, and remains a, a core assumption in so many people's worldviews. And if you just let things flow, if you let the market work, it'll naturally lead to the greatest prosperity. Obviously, we know this is bullshit. Deist metaphysics were nonsense. They were broken down centuries ago. Um, and in the same way, the, the, these, these ideas of a harmonious market are equally nonsense. Um, you know, so... But 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 really, you know, you're you're looking at at at, a, at an individual who is even even Adam Smith is recognizing the problem with absentee ownership, um, and and you know if you want to just do a basic rudimentary class analysis of incentive structures, I think that absentee ownership is is a massive problem, um, and I think that what do you, think, you end uh, up with getting, economic theory. Uh incentivization is uh is a key point because if you kind of look at like there is the kind of like basic bitch kind of like boomer conservative mentality of like pull yourself up from your bootstraps and that people are just uh lazy but uh that doesn't take maybe some you could you could say maybe in some cases that could be true partial truth but that doesn't take into account incentivization and uh my economic I've written a lot about that, my articles on economics and and dissident centrism, but I think both uh, both uh, Marxism and hypercapitalism don't place a strong enough emphasis on incentivization and how to manage that. Yeah, I well, I mean, I, I would say that most capitalist theories don't they they ignore power more than incentivization. I think that they. They, they they come up with very you know I mean you know you know you you have these people who think microeconomics is a science when it's less robust than astrology is um, you know or or game theory I mean you have a lot of work on incentives it's just that the work is wrong because it's starting from completely false um, presumptions about the world um, and about individuals and you know. The most fundamental law of economics is not supply and demand, it's market power. 
it's always been market power. When the king came up to your house and was like, buy this bread, and he has a bunch of knights with swords behind him, you buy the bread. You know, I mean, supply and demand is created by those with power. Um, you know, yeah, there's limits, but the limits are a lot broader than people give it credit for. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think that the boomer side is very much sentiment. It's, it's, there's, a, you know, a perception and sometimes a rightfully so perception that, you know, other people aren't working as hard enough. And, and, you know, the, the, uh, obviously it's extremely simplistic and it misses a lot. Um, and it's wrong in most cases. Uh, looking at uh, political power and the overall power structure, you kind of hear these like two sides. So some people are saying we're witnessing an institutional collapse. Then some are saying there's like a consolidation of power. And then looking at kind of these different trends, like some people are saying that uh, what's going on in Afghanistan right now is like humiliation to the American empire and American system, and that there's also kind of a use of hard power, like a crackdown on civil liberties, under that is going on right now under the Biden administration, just as a, it's symbolic that soft power has failed, and then these other kind of factors, like elite over, elite over production and fragmentation of the elite. So I'm hearing a lot of, like, uh, you have the acceleration mindset, but I'm hearing a lot of uh, contradictory points, so... Is your overall assessment that, that elite power and establishment power is consolidating or uh, fragmenting and fragile? I actually think it's both. Um, so I, I think that there is a humongous gap in, in theorizing power, which is confusing and conflating two very distinct things, which is power and fragility. Um, if you've played a card game, you've played Yu-Gi-Oh, you understand that a card has an attack and a defense. If you've played CSGO, you've probably heard the phrase a glass cannon. You know, it's there is there's a very significant difference between power and fragility, which is power is the ability to, you know, compel others to do as you wish. Sure. Fragility reflects how robust is the system to defection. You know, I can have a very powerful system that fails the moment one person turns their back. I can have a very powerful system that's simultaneously quite robust, which is that I you need you you can't just have one. You can't even just have a majority. You need like eighty, ninety percent of people to defect before it actually breaks. Um, and, and so, you know, you can have a, a, a weak system that's very robust. You can have a strong system that's extremely fragile. And so I actually wrote a piece called Neoliberalism is Dead, Long Live Neoliberalism, which And even effectively, with that term, like I use neoliberalism in my articles and on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, but I think as a buzzword, it's sometimes overused and not, not yeah, well-defined and not always absolutely. well-defined. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like fascism in, in that. Oh, you know, yeah, I for mean, sure. Mussolini wrote something called The Doctrines of Fascism. Friedman wrote, I, I forget what it was called. He, he literally defined neoliberalism in a paper. Like, it's a well-defined, very concrete thing. Um, I, and I'm certainly guilty of overusing it. But it can also it. be used to describe different things. It can mean, yes. Uh, yes. like, radical radical individualism and radical free markets. But it can also Globism, mean just, like, a standard, you know. like a standard kind of establishment Democrat type. Well, who's woke? 
but kind of uh, but kind of centrist economically. So there's no yeah, agreed I upon mean, definition. So it's 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 one of those things where I think um, you know you you have a system that is still strong. You know, I I, I I conceptualize it this way, that you have brute power structures, okay? You have these brute facts of life. But laid on top of them is an ideology that supposedly justifies the existence of these hierarchies that says, okay, these hierarchies are fine because X, Y, and Z. You know, the Pope is supreme because the Pope is the is is you know speaks for God. I I don't I'm probably messing that up theologically, and I apologize to a Catholic who's listening. Um, but you know you have these ideas like the king was given a divine right, therefore the hierarchy is justified. And what you're seeing right now is that the brute power structures are still pretty much there. Um, they they haven't like rapidly decayed. The decay was already there. In, in the 2000s and the 90s, um, it was revealed during the Trump era. Um, it wasn't generated. So, so you know, is there is there a degree to which power is weakening? Maybe, but really, you know, power appears to me to be to be fairly strong. The brute power structures, but um, the the ideology that lays on top of them is just ripping apart at the seams. Um, you know, it's 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 it, it's just tearing itself apart and, and what you're seeing is you're seeing people align themselves with almost pure authority with the pure brute power structure um in a new form um you know a new form of authority is kind of ossifying right now um and it certainly is not a good thing um and and so you know i i think that you have a system that is strong but also fragile um and and i think that the united states and the west broadly is more fragile than people give it credit for and i think that part of the reason why it's not you don't see problems is you know i think it's it's one of the reasons why i i have sympathy towards those who say that you know, it's you're not looking at material decline, but clearly there has to have been some kind of spiritual decline in the West over the last fifty years, which is there's no there's no movement. It feels um, more like a, a stagnation or maybe a managed decline, but it doesn't I mean, feel I like a full on. It's not a collapse. That's not really. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, collapses are not these spectacular events. It's kind of like slowly and then all at once. I mean, I think that. You're looking at a a, a, a gradual, and, but intensifying, especially post two thousand eight, impoverishment of large swaths of the American people. Um, or you and, could have a I collapse, that, like the Roman Empire took. Uh, I think it took me. I forget this. I think it may have took two hundred years to fall. Yeah, it's, so uh, it's you not, could have a collapse that could last a century or more. I mean, I, I think that you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of Virilio and, and the idea of speed, and, and obviously, you know, what what has happened now is, you know, everything moves so much faster, um, and and so you know, I I don't I I don't think that there's a managed decline because I don't think that anyone is trying to 
to to to to manage a decline of a system i think that people are acting according to their incentives and it's just not yeah, working I don't think the incentives that, are like built i don't poorly. i reject the conspiracy theory view yeah. everything is all like top down from a secret yeah, tiny yeah, group i think the, people are just responding i agree with you 100% people are in power or just responding to incentives so what are your thoughts on uh, the viability of uh, alternative institutions uh, such as in economics and finance or education? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, part of, you know, the, the, the last few years is kind of an exploding of, of possibilities with, with tech. And, you know, especially in the last year or so, um, both, you know, the, the importance of homeschooling or local schooling, schools have been closed um, you know, and, and, and considering what schools are turning into, plenty of people don't even want to go back now that they're open. So I think that alternative institutions, and, and I've started writing about this, I'm going to write far more formally in the future, is, you know, you you need institutions that are robust. And, and what I mean by robust is that the members of the institution have to feel a higher loyalty to each other than to really anything else. Um, and, and, you know, the problem is that it's very, very difficult to find those kinds of people. And the people who are like that tend to just be in a religious order. They're a monk or a nun somewhere. Um, you know, you, it, it's very difficult to find that. And so, you know, kind of the, the loss, ironically, of like an honor culture um, now means it's very difficult to build institutions. But it's not impossible. And I think that especially over the last few years it's become more people are, are, are becoming more open to uh, different responding to different kinds of incentives and and so I, I think that you know what you're looking at is you're looking at local institutions um, local education um, and, and and really like decentralized finance is something that I find very interesting it's not necessarily a new idea which gives it a greater amount of legitimacy in my eyes. I mean, there are decentralized local financial institutions, even in the United States right now. I mean, there's mutual credit organizations in a number of uh, uh, northeastern states. I mean, like with religious groups, uh, Mormons, yeah. Orthodox yeah, Jews, exactly. uh, immigrants, and, and yes, so, you know, there's these systems exist, and you know, I, I think that one of the most important things you can do is is really you know build more of these kinds of local institutions that help people escape from you know these two big things you know the the the, the economic side and and the the um the the what's it called the uh the education side i i mean i think that you know it's it's going to require a, a degree of communal operation on a local scale that you know I, I think it's 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 so difficult because there's so many structural forces working against it. But it I when I say it, it really truly is the only way. Like I, I I wrote about this just recently. Is is you know you're not going to take over an institution. You're just not like you will you will be neutered over the course of years via a thousand tiny compromises that's another flaw of the right is conservatives have always been about winning electorally but they've never really yeah considered institutional power 
you know, I mean, and, and this is, you know, I, I wrote about this as well as like, you know, the Battle of Saratoga during the United States Revolution was incredibly critical, not because upstate New York is the most important battlefield out there, but because it proves to the French that we were worth supporting. It was. It was. You know, the French were like, "We're not going to dump millions of, you know, of, or, or I, I guess in today's money, billions of dollars into these upstart, random, you know, mountain people across the ocean just to get back at the British and then lose all of that. We're not going to do that. You know, we're only going to do it if it if it helps us cut a huge source of power away from the British. And they're watching and they're like, "Well, these guys probably are going to lose." And then there was this battle that we're like, "Okay." They've proved themselves. They are worthy of my patronage. I mean, when when you look at these political, you know, actors, they're strategic. They're not going to just align themselves out of the goodness of their heart. They're going to look at you and they're going to go, "What support are you going to give me?" I mean, that's really what a, what a ruler does. It says, "I give you material benefits and you give me support." And and how do you prove that you have that support without an institutional backing? And you don't. Um, so, you know, the, the Donald Trump was a weak president because he was subsumed by the party because he had no institutional backing, um, you know, and so President Trump looked nothing like candidate Trump and, uh, you know, the action and the rhetoric did not match. Um, you know, I mean, like, you need to build that institutional power and, and you need to align it in such a way that it's very much wielded mercilessly. I mean, politicians are not going to learn until they start getting voted out. You know, it, it's just, it's not going to happen. I mean, and you can do this on a local level pretty easily. I mean, local turnout is pitiful. You know, there, there's so many inefficiencies and, and gaps to be exploited um, uh, in the American political system. And, and a lot of it can be done. And, and so, you know, again, I focus on the local and I focus on alternative institutions and, and, and from there, like I won't necessarily refer to it as being wholly bottom up, but you're going to end up generating institutions that become aligned with each other and, and generate their own new elites. Um, and, and those new elites will, will be able to have power to, to challenge the, the systems that are almost just destroying what makes life worth living today. Um, well, no, yeah, that does uh, that does kind of tie in with uh, pan, like pan enclavism, and uh, yep. it does call for it does call for autonomy on a group level. Uh, it's not against individual rights, but it's against identity based on radical individualism, and it accepts that yep. all politics is identity politics. But I guess it's a sort of uh, I don't know if I want to use the word right wing, but it is a sort of right wing multiculturalism. And, uh, yeah, pan-enclavism, it's an alternative to both uh, civic nationalism and the, the kind of more kind of larpy like, forms of ethnic, ethnic-based nationalism that are not going to go anywhere. Yep. So it's, a, it's incorporating as, aspects of multiculturalism from the left. So it is, it's multiculturalism where, uh, where whites can take part, but at the same time, it is accepting that multiculturalism is inevitable, which the right is extremely uncomfortable with, where you have like an individual town that's more uh, it's more homogenous as part of this, but it's part of a greater, more diverse, uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural patch, patchwork. 
So uh, yep. even some kind of lefty types like Norman Mailer or Jane Jacobs were kind of sympathetic to this back in the 60s. And it's critic. It is yeah. critical for economic opportunities and the balance of uh, power. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is this is something that um, we agree on almost entirely. Um, you know, Jane Jacobs referred to a healthy city as being a federation of neighborhoods. Um, you know, and 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 that's it's it's a it's a pretty big theme in 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 new urbanist theory. You know, the idea that you have these these connected parts, but the parts are themselves fairly, you know, they're their own things, um, you know. And, and so, I, I again, I, I wouldn't necessarily refer to that as right wing per se, you know, as much as just kind of like a different understanding of where um, autonomy lies. What is you know, it's towns, for? Uh, like, it's for freedom of association that the left, like the left, is uh, in its current form is opposed to any community that is homogeneously uh, white or European, but yes. at the same time, yeah. it is accepting that we are part of this multicultural framework, and I think the right wants to keep fighting and fighting that, and then basically, uh, I think that, I think both from like the from some from the more kind of Fox News conservatives to the more extreme like white nationalist types, they want to fight against. Uh, diversity, but they're not going anywhere. You kind of have to make peace with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so like I'm I'm Native American, and one of the things that I always have felt it's not something that you vocalize in, in pleasant company necessarily, but like there is an extent to which you know being in a, in a northeastern tribe that has no land, um, that that has no very little cohesion left, largely because it has no land. Um, is that you know there is there, there there's definitely a feeling of, of being robbed of, of, of understanding your heritage certainly um, and and so I think that you know in, in the same way and I think we agree entirely I think I came at it you know from, from the Jane Jacobs left wing kind of side which is you know you, you know even in New York City like you have neighborhoods that are much more homogeneous. But it's in part of a very, very diverse city, um, and, and so I yeah, think that that kind of patchwork like tribalism that, is uh, in various parts of the world, like Africa, South Asia, the Middle East. Like tribalism is the norm, and the kind of liberalism that wants to force everyone that wants to that wants to erode that and kind of abolish freedom of association and force everyone to share the same mass society and centralized institution. Yeah, it's, it's quasi-imperialist. I mean, I, I referred to this as, you know, the, the homogenization of spaces, which is that every town looks the same, you know, it's the so, same yeah, restaurants, like uh... the same same demographics, everything. And, and, and there's no there's no uniqueness. There, there's nothing there's nothing there to to uh, to 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 look for. I mean, I think that a very strong part of, or a very big part of the of this this push on the left is is a very strong feeling that, and it's it's a correct one. It's an observation more than a feeling. But economic opportunity, or or even just the opportunity to have anything resembling a decent life, is very unequally distributed geographically across this country. Not not just income wise, you know, but you know, some towns are 
you know, they look like bombed out hell holes. I mean, you know, they, they could, they, you know, it looks like they could have been at war 15 years ago. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not just, this isn't just impacting minority neighborhoods. I mean, the entire Rust Belt is, is just a, a travesty. And, and, you know, I think that there is a feeling that people need freedom of movement for the fact that people need, you know, the ability to live a good life. And, you know, I, I think that the, the response to this is that, you know, you need a level of community or communal self-determination. You know, you need people to say, okay, like my community has a character. Um, and, and like, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't particularly care how people define that character. Yeah, like I'm That's totally to for freedom of association, but I think the right – this is another thing I, I strongly dislike about most of the American right is they're, they're saying they're against diversity and multiculturalism because it's causing division. I think we should embrace diversity and having communities yeah, that are unique yeah. and distinct. The, the main reason the... – I'm strongly opposed to uh, – to the left and the kind of corporate establishment because they're against diversity, their values and political system is leading to this mass homogenization. Yeah, it's 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 not diversity that causes the problems. It's homogenization. It's it's the fact that, that everything gets smashed together instead of saying, okay, like everything needs a space. Alright, it needs a place. There's a commons, there's a common area, there's a common place, but like everything needs its own space. It needs a place in society. Yeah, you need that balance, and it's the same with urban planning. Uh, like, regardless, there's this whole debate about density, whether we should have skyscrapers or single or or more kind of rural areas of villages. But regardless, the common the commons are the most crucial, regardless of the of urbanism. And a lot of a lot of uh, suburbs, you have a street with uh, with retail uh, restaurants or fast food or whatever, or then you have residential yeah. and there's no, con- there's no, there's like a lacking of any commons. Yeah. I mean, and, you and know, panoclavism would incorporate that. Yeah. I mean, my, my big problem with, with the Yimby movement is the, is, is it's, it's my, my big disagreement with like this, this vulgar productivism. It's like, just build more. There's no question of, is it, is, are we building in a healthy manner or an unhealthy manner? There's just these very basic, like, well, it, it'll it'll decrease carbon emissions per per capita by by some amount supposedly, and you know it'll bring housing prices down. There's no there's no engagement in those deeper questions of is it building a healthier society or or, or building a, a oh, more yeah, atomized and unhealthy one. Right. And so I think that you know there's like there there's there's good density, and then there's bad density. There, there's good urbanism and bad urbanism. Bad urbanism is not just sprawl. It's like building well, I think both sides. I think scale. beyond there's this obsession of density against low density, but I think both sides have the same problems. Oh, yeah. You could have uh, a low density area that's like these uh, villages that are high in social capital, but there's ex- there's like semi rural to urban well, areas that are they're totally atomized, and you could have I a mean, dense villages... urban area that's. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. in a, I mean, an urban area that's so, atomized. I think both density and low density so can have positive, and then they can have the same problems. Yeah, well, well, different forms of the same problems. You see different kinds of atomization in, in rural areas than, than in urban ones. But like, you know, I, I mean, I think that 
there's a return to kind of like the hub city or the hub village and 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 people all being within walkable distance of it you know i mean i mean there's a lot of different levels of density that can have healthy urbanism or healthy networks but you know it's it's a the general problem is building beyond the human scale, you know, and, and, and kind of forgetting what it means to live in a, a healthy society all in pursuit of some economic um, optimization. With uh, this theme of post-Americanism, which you have in your handle, uh, I think it uh, doesn't mean that, that uh, America is guaranteed to break up into smaller countries. There are independence movements, but what it basically means is that America will exist as a political and economic unit, but the, the ideology of Americanism is dying out. Yeah, more, more specifically that America was founded as a liberal nation, um, that America, that that is what America is liberalism right now. I mean, at, at, certainly you could make an argument, it's debatable, but you could make an argument that at some point... America was a blood and soil nation. I don't think that's true. Um, I think that the sheer size of America meant that different nations really built up and ignoring even, I mean, I mean, people were loyal to their states more than the nation, you know, forever until really the civil war and we're ignoring the entire problem or, or issue of, of, of white and black relations as well and how that fits into the nation. So, um, I, but but you know certainly you can make that argument. I mean, what, if even if that existed, it's gone. It's been gone for generations. It's not coming back. I think that part of the right and, and part of what's frustrating about the right is this vision that largely a, a romanticized vision of, of of this blood and soil nation that they want back. And you know, problem is it never existed in the first place, um, and you're never getting it back. Um, you know, it's and, and that's you know, it's like it's like okay, like the world isn't ending because of that. So I, I think that you know, with the idea of post-America is, you know, abandon the the acceptance of of, of liberalism, abandon that, and, and understand like okay, there are multiple little you know groups of there's really multiple nations within America, and like that's fine. Yeah, but, like understand that America is like one. One neighborhood could function as like a micronation. Yeah, you know, and, and that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I, I, I found your work very interesting. I think we resonate with each other, and you know, it's it's understanding that America is an internal empire. That's what it is. It's not a nation. It's you know, and, and it's fine for it to be an internal empire. I mean, you're, that is ironically post- probably yeah, post-Americanism more... as an ideology. It's not anti-Americanism. It's just saying yeah, it's not. that embra- accepting accepting that we're not a traditional ironically, nation. ironically, it may very well be more trad than than most of these oh, these markers because yeah, you know the it's Ottomans, the, the, the articles are confess. Well, no, not even just just that, but even within America, it's like prior to the Civil War. I mean, people did not. You know, it wasn't really a thing to think of ourselves as one nation. I mean, that was very much an intention. Yeah, that's not even uh, that's not even like a new phenomenon because of new waves yeah. of, of immigrants. Even in colonial times, you had different, like Albion C, like the Puritans, yep. the Cavaliers, yep. different groups yep. that were kind of at odds. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. I think one last thing I want to ask you 
is yep. do you think uh, you said get woke, go broke as a cope? Do you think uh, another characteristic of the post right is calling everything a cope? And do you think a lot of uh, a lot of dissident and online politics is is a cope to fulfill a certain psychological need? Yes, yes. I actually, funny enough, wrote about that um, just just recently. But you know, basically, the the idea. I, I think that the the actual the title is the LARPing will continue until morale improves. Um, and 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 really, you know, there is a there's this idea of, of, of playing a LARP as, as being almost intellectually or, or emotionally sedating. Um, and, and I think that you have a system in which um, you, you know, you, you have people kind of taking what, what would be energy used to rebel against the system and kind of putting it into a simulation of the world in their head and, and playing these roles that are detached from reality and but are treated as, as to, 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 to butcher Baudry, uh, I can't pronounce anything, Baudrillard, um, realer than real, you know, the, the, these, these simulations, these games. And, and you know, I, I, I think that what it comes down to is it comes down to actually building things. I mean, you know, the acquiring clout is no different than you know being one of those NGOs that and raises some, I guess awareness. In some cases, some people online they lack the economic, the economic wealth and the social capital to build anything, so they have to, they kind of rely upon copes. But it's important yeah, to, be I able mean, to be able to psychologically differentiate between the two. It's okay to engage in intellectual endeavors, but to differentiate between what's what's a cope and what's hypothetical and then what is uh what's actually something you can build that's tangible and 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 i mean you know my big thing is is like you can build social capital i mean this is there is something to be said about going out shaking hands and exchanging smiles i mean you know yeah yeah i think that that any dissident movement needs a lot fewer theorists and a lot more salespeople. you know like there's there's a degree of um, uh, of 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 cope in there, sure, uh, in terms of the theory and the roles that people play. But it is it is important to guide. But like what what really needs to happen for any dissident movement, whether it's a post liberal left, a post left, a post right, whatever you want to call it, neither left nor right, all centrism, apexism, whatever, any kind of of, of movement that's seeking to change the established order is going to need to convince large numbers of people to go along with it um and and you do that um in the same way that sports teams gain loyalty you do that by winning you do that by demonstrating competence you do, you can do that on a local level like i have so i can do i scratch your back you scratch mine i can do something for you and you know you can do it on a regional level you can do it on a national level like here is a product in exchange for you using the product you know, you know, you you pay me, and, and and you know, you've established a network, and you know, all of these kinds of things, like building systems, um, or even just uh, you know, again, like going out and, and and talking about things with people, and this is important. It's important to kind of, especially, you know, I think that we're we're in a very important period. We are in a crisis. Um, you know, and, and I don't believe in never-ending crises. Crises are, are more than just government policy. It's they're they're historical moments that 
allow for an opening of possibility because a lot of the 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 beliefs kind of are 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 you know there's a, a widespread disillusionment and I think that's happened and, and I think that all of the polls and, and, and everything, all of the discussions, the discourse uh play that out. But you you need to to actually like engage with the um with 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 real people in the real world you need to build things and you know it is time to build it's not time to build rocket ships and 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 skyscrapers and space elevators it's time to build institutions that can can become power bases to to shift things and you know i i think that we are on a terminal not necessarily a terminal but we're on a very sharp decline i think that we're going a lot faster than people expect us to and I, I don't I don't foresee uh, good things coming out of that. I, I think that if we want to arrest that decline or build, you know, you got to build an off ramp, and, and that off ramp has to be strong enough and sturdy enough to to, and, and it also has to be gradual enough to allow a speeding car to get off. Um, you know, and and so how do you do that? And there are ways to do it, and so that's where I think that those alternative institutions come in. And it's why I, you know, I build, sell the bills, sell the products to people and, and start building that actual power base. I mean, you know, listen, none of us are perfect at everything. And, and I can't build a DeFi application, the decentralized finance one. But I can, I'm working on homeschooling stuff. I mean, that's that's something that I can do. And so find what you can do and, and, and start building things. You know, that's 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 really all there is to it at the end of the day we can talk have we can launch as many podcasts as we want but what comes down to it is boots on the ground and you know that's that 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 makes or breaks the movement so that that's you know alternative institutions uh is is the future or there is no future uh we're at the end of the show uh before i wrap up do you want to uh, plug your appearances on a number of podcasts, including Breaking the Rules, which has Gio Panacietti, who uh, I had on this podcast, Alex Kachuta, and the South African uh, YouTube tuber uh, Conscious Caracol, and then any, any other uh, upcoming projects that you want to plug? Yeah, I, uh, I have a couple uh, magazine articles in, in the works, one of which will discuss very similar themes uh, to, to this podcast. So I can't, can't release the names, but uh, certainly we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be sharing it when it, when it comes out. Um, you know, I, I, I blog at apexesnotes.substack.com. Um, I try to post about two or three times a week. Um, but yeah, I mean... Thank you, Robert, for the conversation. I really appreciate you bringing me on and, and taking the time to do this. So, uh, you know, I, I had a really nice time talking. I, I think that we resonate a lot of things. Um, hope to have more of these conversations in the future. Uh, Apex, great show. Uh, check out his Substack. Thanks for being on. Thank you.